Glad you're here. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll hand one to you. I'm going to be just running through the New Testament today, so we'll put all this, all the uh, texts on the screen. But in case you'd like to make sure I'm making correct quotes, you can uh, grab a Bible and uh, follow along there. Also, if you need notes or anything. And if you're sitting on the aisle and there's a basket under your seat, would you grab it and pass it down? In these baskets um, are cards, and they're just communication cards. If you haven't turned over your address to us, like in order to stay connected to the goings-on of our community, you're welcome to fill out a card, and um, we can connect with you better that way, or a prayer request or anything like that. Put on the card. And then finally, I just want to acknowledge that um, about 20, 25 women from our community are up in Tahoe today on retreat. And uh, so I've been praying for them, and I hope you have too, and we'll remember them this morning as they have their last gathering together. And I don't know how that translates in your home, but in my home, that basically means we've had uh, like cold cereal about seven meals in a row. And I am so excited to be here because I'm going to do one thing for the next 30 minutes, right? I, I know I'm in the right place, and this is the right time. And I think my kids are in the right place. Um, and so... Uh, Every time Carmen leaves um, for a bit, I am astounded at um, the amount of work that she does and also totally impressed by those who maintain a household solo. Uh, what a ton of work. So welcome. Glad you're here with us. I'm going to jump right in. So glad you're with us. My hope, as always, with this sermon is that it will really challenge you and that it will comfort you, that you'll be enough disturbed enough that you'll dig a little deeper uh, comforted enough that you'll sense the presence of God encouraging you to keep going. All right, so last week uh, we, we looked at probably the strangest and most or least understood part of the life of Jesus, at least his life on earth. We looked at the doctrine of the ascension of Christ, uh, this, this, this scene in Jesus' life that's recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in Mark, um, it's recorded in Luke, it's recorded in Acts, where Jesus ascends into heaven after dying rising back to life continually um, making himself known and present to his his disciples for 40 days following the resurrection then his last scene on earth is this he is taken up before his disciples in in a cloud it's a really strange and yet hugely important part of his life and and there's a couple reasons for that i preached on this last week uh, one of the reasons that I just want to use as sort of a segue today is that Jesus retained, one of the reasons the ascension, in other words, is so important is because Jesus, is, he retains his physical body when he ascends to heaven. He remains human, which is just amazing. You might think that um, Jesus, who was God, who was with God in the beginning, right, but then became a person, took on flesh, became a man, was born, right, as a baby, would be all done with his body now. That would make sense from one perspective, right? That he's li he lived, he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and now you'd think that maybe he would just sort of be done with his body. Why does he need that anymore? Maybe he'd just sort of shed his human skin and ascend to heaven as a spirit again. He was spirit from eternity past, and then he needs to be human when he comes to earth, but does he really need to maintain his humanity as he goes on? So you'd think that maybe the story would have been like after Jesus appears several times to his disciples that he would just lay down and fall asleep and they would have some sort of mystical experience of witnessing his spirit go to heaven, but that's not the story. What they have is this experience of witnessing his body going up 
into heaven. And this is a radical message, the doctrine of the ascension. What's so surprising is that Jesus retains, he chooses to retain his, his humanity, not just his divinity, but his humanity forever. Why? So deep is his love for us who he came to serve, to love, to rescue that he remains one of us forever. It's just amazing. Even in the ascension, Jesus shows us what it means to be human. He is born and lives and obeys the Father in order to show us what it means to be human. And even in his ascension, he shows us what it means to be human. What is that? To be fully alive and to be fully united with God the Father forever. That's humanity as it was designed to be experienced. And Jesus, again, is our pioneer and our hero in showing us how to do that. It has been said that a human hand will throw open the gates of heaven, which is amazing. What an amazing image, right? So until that time, Jesus is actually, ironically, in a sense, more present and more powerful to us than he even was in, the, in his earthly ministry, when you walk to the earth. So if you weren't here last week, I, I rarely do this, but I encourage you to hear or to watch the sermon on EmmausCommunity.org or on our iTunes podcast, because this doctrine, we just, we never talk about it. And yet it's, it's one of the, I mean, these songs that we just sang this morning, I don't know if you made the connection, a completely different quality of experience for me, having soaked in this reality for the last couple weeks. Um, in other words, I have a, a different picture in my mind, a different visual image um, as I imagine Christ retaining his humanity and yet in heaven uh, at, the, at the hand of God. All right, uh, one of the things that I said last week that, that um, I continue to hear about throughout the week um, was I quoted a New Testament scholar named William Barclay who said that one of the reasons it's so hard to understand the doctrine of the ascension, one of the reasons it's so hard to visualize the doctrine of the ascension is because there is no good art, is what he says, about the ascension. And what was so funny was, without really planning it, we knew the topic and the message and the content, but without planning it, our curriculum writer for last Sunday had the kids draw the ascension, right? And so several of you who are parents came up and challenged my assertion that there is no good art about the ascension and provided like examples of actually some really brilliant art. I mean, we saw some fantastic childlike art of the ascension last week, so I wanted to just say thank you for that. I've been corrected. Beautiful pieces of ascension art created last Sunday. I talked with Tom Tracy, who was teaching one of our kids' classes last Sunday on the ascension, and he noted that uh, apparently kids don't have very much trouble imagining the ascension. Apparently, imagining the ascension is an adult issue. The, the, the complexity, the difficulty in imagining something like this uh, has settled in in adulthood. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? A kind of interesting reason given for why it's difficult throughout history, the history of the church, to grasp the story of the ascension, that there's no good art, that there's no good pictures. We want good pictures. And, and I would argue this morning that we actually need good pictures. Um, I, I want to say that symbol is more than just an accessory to the soul. Right? Good art is more than just an extra, oh, that'd be nice if we had that to add on to our story. Our soul needs imagery. Our soul needs true pictures, good, real pictures. We need a picture of Jesus. And more than that, we need a current picture of Jesus. Right? Um, I think I'm going to make a list, because it's just happening more and more. I'm going to make a list of... of <laughs> 
things that are happening because I'm getting old, uh, older. One of the things that has happened three times already this year, 2015, is I have been asked for a current picture. <laughs> what is that? So, like, it's an organization that I'm a part of, or an ID, or some other, like, a speaking thing. Yes, Nathan, we, we do have a picture of you on file. Can you send us a current picture? What is that? Um, I guess I'm changing. I guess I'm getting older. Uh, there's some value in having a current picture. I don't know. That and hair on the ears. I hate that. All right. So, Apostles' Creed, written in the second century. 1,800-year-old statement. Why? It gives us just that. It gives us a current picture of, of Christ. So what I'd like to do is say what we've studied so far, what we've reviewed so far of the Apostles' Creed together, and then what I want to do is stop after the only line in the creed, the creed that gives us a current picture of Jesus. The only line in the creed, you'll know it's the current picture of Jesus line, because it's the only line in the creed about Jesus that's written in the present tense, all right? So say this with me. We'll say this together kind of slowly. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Of God the Father Almighty. I think I said that wrong, sorry. So this is the current picture of Jesus. This is Jesus as he is today. This is, we have a picture of you, Jesus, on file, but we need a current picture. This is it, right? There's a lot of good pictures about Jesus. There's a lot of true pictures of Jesus. But if someone were to say, I need to know what Jesus is doing and what he looks like now, this is what I would tell them. Jesus is seated, the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Where do you get that picture? What's the biblical support for that picture? Where do we read about this picture, this image of Jesus in Scripture? The answer is almost everywhere. Let me hustle through a bunch of um, sources of this essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Uh, King David begins uh, the 110th Psalm, which is a prophetic psalm, um, with these words. King David lives a thousand years before Jesus is born wrote a lot of the Psalms in the Old Testament. He says this, the Lord, all caps, which is Bible translator's way of saying this is the word Yahweh, this is the proper name of God. The Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, says David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Who is David's Lord? If Yahweh says to David's Lord, who is David's Lord? Who is he thinking of when he says God says to my Lord, nobody, nobody knows for like a thousand years. Who is David talking about? And then, a thousand years later, Jesus comes along, and he quotes this psalm in reference to himself. And this is recorded in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. Jesus quotes this verse in reference to himself. He's arguing that he is the Messiah, that he came from David in terms of his humanity. He is a descendant of David, and yet he predates David in terms of his divinity. He existed before David even did, right? So this picture, or this image of Christ at the right hand of God, 
um, is quoted by Jesus and then runs throughout the entire New Testament, it is almost certainly the clearest and most consistent current picture of Jesus that we're given. Here's some more examples. During his trial before Pilate, Jesus says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. In the first Christian sermon preached by Peter in, uh, on Pentecost Acts chapter 2, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. And then he describes Jesus as exalted to the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 5, Peter is speaking defiantly to the Sanhedrin, which is the religious legal group that arrested and persecuted and called for the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter says, God exalted Jesus at his right hand hand as prince and savior. Two chapters farther in, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned. He's the first Christian martyr. He's being killed, and he looks up, and he sees this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is the picture of Jesus, and it continues all through the New Testament. Here's some from the writings of Paul. To the Romans, Paul writes, Lord uh, Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Uh, Paul instructs the Colossians to seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To the Ephesians, he says that uh, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. And in the first paragraph of Hebrews, it continues. The writer says, after Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down. Are you getting the, are you getting the pattern? Right At the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And later in the same book, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter, the fisherman, the apostle, Jesus' right hand, right? He says it very plainly. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Okay, real clear. And then throughout the New Testament, this is the current picture that we're given of Christ. And this is good. This is so good. This is so needed. We need pictures. We need something to visualize. It's really, listen, it is really, it's really difficult to live into or to apply a truth in your life. If it remains theoretical or academic, it will never make a difference in the way you live until you connect that truth with a picture that you can identify with right? Now it begins to like line up into the way you live and, and operate in your world. Until you connect truth to pictures, we need, adults need books with pictures. We all need pictures in order for us to start to understand how this really makes a difference in our life. So I want to ask two questions this morning. The first is very simple. Where is Jesus? Which I hope we just made really clear. The answer, Christians believe Right? This whole series is about what do Christians believe and why does it matter? Christians believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. This is what David prophesies in the Psalms a thousand years before Jesus is born. It's being sung about in the hymns and the prayers of the Hebrew people is what Jesus himself declares. Peter, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, the creed. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The second important question. Well, why does that matter? This is the weirdest thing. Why does that matter? Tell me how that is relevant. What is the point of that picture? If I took a Polaroid picture of Jesus at the right hand and I handed it to you, what would it mean? 
Like, what would be the difference? If a picture is worth a thousand words, what are some of the words that would be illustrated by this image? First, let me speak to the problem, and then I'll speak to the, um, the significance of it, the purpose of it. Here's the problem, and, and here's what's interesting. The problem is only a problem in the West, and it's only been a problem since the Enlightenment, since the scientific, uh, scientific uh, proof was sort of elevated, scientific method is like elevated as the ultimate um, barometer or source of finding what is real. The problem comes when we try to understand this picture literally. That's where the problem lies. You say, I'm, I'm way more sophisticated than that. No, you're stuck in that. I'm stuck in that. This is the way we've been trained to think. Uh, but the church fathers are really clear on this. Is it a true picture? They'll say, yes, absolutely, it's true. Is it a literal picture? They'll say, no, it's not. This is John of Damascus. He's a sixth a uh, uh, Syrian monk who lived in the 600s, early 700s, and he writes this. He says, We do not hold that the right hand of the Father is an actual place. For how could, uh, how could he that has no bounds have a right hand that's limited by place? He says, Neither right hand nor sit is to be taken literally. Another writer says, In order to attempt to speak about God, in order to even attempt to speak about God, we end up speaking as if God is some colossally magnified human figure with the beard sitting on a throne and Jesus sitting next to him on another throne. And this isn't bad. We have to use pictures to talk about God. We, we have to use words that aren't totally, literally accurate to talk about God. These the are the only tools we have. This is not a literal picture, but yes, it is a true picture. How is it true then? Well, it's true in its meaning. It's true in what it communicates. And you and I need true pictures. We need to see things as they actually are. This might sound like a really unnecessary distinction uh, that I'm spending time on here, but I really don't think that it is. Much of the trouble that people seem to have with Christianity, not with Christians, people have other problems with Christians, but the, the problem that people seem to have with Christianity, uh, I think, can be boiled down into this one question. How, do that, how does that work? How does that work? At Christmas, so we get asked this. We believe, Christians believe at Christmas, we celebrate this idea that God became a human. People say, how does that work? We've been talking about how Jesus is all God and all man. How does that work? I mean, come on, how does that, how does that actually work? I need, to, I need you to explain that to me. Jesus feeds thousands of people from one little boy's lunch. How does that work? He, he heals lepers. He raises people from the dead. He casts demons out of despairing children. How does that work? He ascended into heaven had two small groups about this this last week. How does that work? We just wrestled with that. We kind of couldn't, couldn't get away from that question. How did that actually happen, we want to know? Friends, we just need to let that go. We just need to let that question go. No, I need to figure it out. I need you to explain it to me. I need, it to, be, I need to figure it out. Look, if you can figure this out, <laughs> if you can explain God, 
then what you've done is you've reduced something that's irreducible into something that fits into your little head. And you might be really, really brilliant and really, really smart, but I just guarantee you're just not that smart. You're just not smart enough to do that. You're not going to be able to get beyond the mystery of, of some of these Christian doctrines. It's just, if, you want to, if you're going to get stuck in the, how does that work, then you're just stuck. You're just stuck there, right? So here's this consistent, historic, Old Testament, New Testament, creedal, true image of Jesus that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, how does that work? That's a wrong question. What does that mean? There you go. There you go. What does that mean? It's a way better question. Now we can go somewhere with that. You follow me? That's the right question. Here are three things that are communicated by the picture of Jesus seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. In other words, three ways, three ways this picture matters to you this week right now. Three ways it matters. Number one, the picture is of Jesus seated. He is sitting down. By saying that Jesus is seated, Christians are communicating the belief that the bulk of Jesus' work is done. It has been accomplished Right? Specifically, Jesus' great work of redemption has been accomplished. He came to earth, he lived and died as one of us, and then he rose again from the grave, overcoming sin and death, and now that work is done. Right? And Jesus, one of Jesus' last words on the cross is, it is finished. Remember reading that? To a significant degree, Jesus' mission has already been accomplished. This is the picture of uh, the rest after the battle. Jesus is seated now. This is the calm after the storm. This is the the peace that comes at the end of the pilgrimage. So how how does this help you this week? How does this help? When when I pray, this is the battle that I have when I pray. I I struggle with confidence about how God feels about me. I don't need to struggle with that. Because that has been clearly articulated and demonstrated to me. Certain things have been settled, in other words, right? Jesus, the whole reason Jesus has come is to articulate and demonstrate the fact that he loves me, right? That's what John writes, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. I don't need to wonder how God feels about me. I can know certain things that he has made profoundly clear. I can be assured of the fact that I am forgiven. He has already accomplished the source of my forgiveness on the cross. That is done. He's done with that work now. He has secured my forgiveness. See, even when it appears that life has no meaning, that things are careening out of control, everything's just sort of this chaotic blender of random, pointless chance, I can look at this picture of Jesus as I'm praying and stuff is chaotic. I can look at this picture in the eye of my heart and I see Jesus seated at the right hand of God and I can be assured of how the story ends. It does not end in wicked chaos, right? There's this calm. The main work has been accomplished. The war's already been won. Uh, Recently, I I met with our our, um, leaders of Ember, which is our high school ministry here at Emmaus. And I was shown some of the responses that the high school kids gave at their winter retreat anonymously, but then shared with the group responses to the question, what is keeping you from giving your whole life to God? That's the question they were given. And then they anonymously wrote down on cards, what's keeping them? And as I read some of these, I was very sad. I don't feel worthy of God's love. One second. I'm not good enough. One said, I don't think God would use a person like me. And another one said, God can't use a person like me. 
the whole reason Jesus came, right? The whole reason he came is to demonstrate that this, is, this issue is settled. He loves you. You are incredibly valued in his eyes. He, you have, are of an unestimable worth in the eyes of God. There is no question about how much esteem God places in you. Yes, he wants to use you. Yes, he can use you. Right? He has come to deliver this message that you are hugely valuable to him. You're covered by his grace. He's already called you his child. Do you know when I'm going to sit down today? After I've said what I came to say, then I'll sit down. I'll sit down today after I've done the work that I've prepared to do today. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God because he has come to declare this world-altering truth that God loves us, and he's communicated that, and that's done, so now he's sitting down. Okay? So we can know that. We can pray this whole different level of assurance, right? Because that has been made crystal clear. All right. Uh, he's also, he's not only seated, he's seated at the right hand of God. Even though God's redemptive work in terms of the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection is done, don't miss this, he is still actively involved in our lives. He is not seated on the beach at a resort in Florida. He's not done done, right? The work has been done, but he is still actively involved in the life of his people. He is with God. Paul says he is advocating, like cheering for you, longing for you, praying for you, um, not just as, not just for us, but he is praying as one of us. Right? So having made the way of salvation clear, he now remains powerfully present in our lives, cheering for us, praying for us as we face our battles. Maybe we put it this way, Jesus is your biggest fan. He really is. I feel like that might sound a bit corny, but that is the absolute truth in the sense that he is longing for you to endure the trials that you're facing. That's what he's cheering for, that you'll make it through this, that you will persevere. You won't be derailed. You won't be so discouraged that you quit. He's paved the road. He's enabled. He's called you forward, right? You have been baptized in his name, many of you. You've all been invited into this, this uh, call of salvation, and now Jesus is praying that you'll succeed, that you'll have victory, that you'll make it all the way to the end. He literally is cheering for you. And if Acts 7 where Peter is being stoned to death, if that could serve as an example for us, then that story tells us that in our most intense moments of life, when things are the most dire, Stephen's being hit in the head with rocks, Jesus stands for him, right? He stands for him. He's so uh, hungry for him to make it, to succeed through this. Do you see the passion in this, in this picture that we have of Jesus? That he's interceding for us, longing for us to endure to the end. Right? He's saying, don't make it. Keep going. You're almost there. Don't quit. I'm with you all the way to the end. Right? You're not alone. You're never alone. Every week. I mean, this is so sad to me. Every week, I talk to somebody about struggling with loneliness. Almost every staff meeting, we pray for people that have some sort of loneliness issue that they share with us. You're not alone. You, you never walk into a difficult meeting alone. You never stand before your class alone. When I hear people struggling with loneliness, it's not like I don't understand that. It's not that that's totally um, like unreasonable or shame on you or anything like that, but it does make me sad. 
And in fact, it actually makes me a little bit mad because what's happened there is, is a, a false picture is being believed. You're believing a picture of you that's all alone. And that's not true. You're not all alone. Jesus is with you. He's right with you. He's got your back, right? He's inside you. He's still perpetually present in your life. He's cheering for you. And then finally, the picture of Jesus seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Oh my goodness, Almighty. It communicates this ultimate authority that Jesus has. He, he now rules. He, right now, his celestial session is the theologian. It is the, the session of absolute authority. Jesus is the boss. He is the king of kings. There is nothing higher, no one higher than him. He is in charge now, right? So in, well, why does that matter? Well, there's a lot of reasons that matters. One of them is that in your suffering, you can take heart in your suffering. You can be encouraged because Jesus is not indifferent to your pain. Life may feel out of control. Life may look out of control. There's at least a couple families in our church where I'm like, I just go, holy cow, I don't know what else can happen here because it just, from my vantage point, stuff's just swirling completely out of control. But here's the truth. God is not out of control. Jesus is not out of control, right? So you can trust him for your provision. You can. You can trust him for the, for the protection of your children, that's the message, right? You can trust him with your future. You can. You can take strength from the picture of Jesus who is highly exalted. He is the ruler over heaven and earth. So he will bring justice. That's what that means. He will make things right. He is the ultimate authority. There's three men on my prayer list right now from this church who are unemployed. And in my estimation, all three of them lost their jobs in ways that are unjust. So I'm praying to the advocate of their souls that they would be um, defended and provided for by their advocate. If your advocate is some weak, uninfluential nothing, then you're hosed. But if your advocate is the authority of all cosmos, then you're in good shape, <laughs> all right? You are in good hands. You actually, and I'm not just, you actually can rest in the chaos. You can. You can rest. This is the invitation. This is the beautiful and glorious opportunity. Not naivete, not I'm ignoring it, not I'm just whistling it. You can just rest in the chaos. What are you resting in? The assurance that you're in the hands of God, right? You're in the hands of God, the authority of all, the king of kings. He's got you. You, not only can you rest, you can actually, truly experience this deep-seated, like ironic, almost offensively ironic joy in the midst of chaos. You can. It's possible. Because you know that Jesus Christ, who loves you and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, he's got you. It's going to be okay. You're going to make it. Your future is whole. Your future is wonderful. It really is. Your future is glorious if Christ is our example. You can rest in him. Your future is a future of full life and full union with God. It's going to be okay. 
So Lord, we want to pray for a minute for great grace to believe uh, what the church has taught since the beginning. I pray, Lord, I thank you for pictures. I thank you for pictures that go past our brains and into our souls. I thank you for more than just diagrams for our minds. I thank you for symbols for our hearts. And I pray that true pictures, that current pictures of you in your love, in your advocacy, in your triumph, um, in in your protection, would be strong enough in our hearts to combat all of the other images that are hitting us from all different places. And may we be people of faith, um, truly Christian people, embracing you as you are now. Well, we pray for help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, in just a minute, we're going to take a minute and, uh, and just say good morning to one another. But before we do, uh, I, I just... I'm not convinced that this opportunity is, is uh, being shared as, or received as important as it actually is. So I want to take some time just now to, to share this. And Jill, why don't you kind of come on up with me. Um, for several years now, we have had a really um, strong and I think very effective ministry to single parents. And we expanded that in recent years to the whole city. And so now there are all kinds of single parents not just those who are part of our church, receiving financial care, emotional support, those kinds of things, mentoring. Um, and one of the things, and this just, you know, this was a great weekend for this because I was you know, solo in a sense, in an incredibly minor sense. Um, but one of the things that we, that we have found is that really helpful for single parents, m- most often moms in our culture, is to just have a, a time when we come and uh, help them with stuff in their house. And so we've, we plan these all the time, and we need to show up strong this, this time. And, and I know you're probably thinking like I'm thinking, if I have three hours on a Saturday morning, I've got like nine things to do at my house. Um, but I want to challenge you to uh, put that off one more Saturday and uh, make a commitment to help some people out who have some stuff that they um, there isn't somebody else in the house who can do some of these things. So it's May 9th in the morning, and I'd like for you to sign up so we can send people to the right places at the right time. The reason I've asked Jill to share is because I want to hear from your perspective as a single mom uh, why this matters, how this helps.
great. Great. Thanks for helping us out. Appreciate it. All right. Would you stand up with me? Uh, also, in, I'm going to ask you to sign up for this even at the piece, which is why we're doing this before our break. And secondly, there's a new to Emmaus lunch that's on the schedule. And if you'd like to come to that, ask questions about the community, share your story, hear ours, you can sign up for that as well. All right. So we'll take a short break at this time. This really is rooted in the conviction that we're loved by God. And then we want to go ahead and turn right around and express love and grace to others. So take a minute to do that this morning. We'll come back together for the rest of our gathering, right? May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Greet one another with the peace of Christ.